We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovix. Joining me today is Sam Laurie. He's got a background in financial services, bullion, derivatives, and algorithmic trading. Sam, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's great to be back with you. I'd like to start by getting your, you know, really your perspective on the market's reaction today to the little bit hotter than expected CPI numbers and how gold sold off. We're, we're At the moment we're recording this, we're just below that $2,000 level. So it's, I'd like to get your take on how the market perceives these numbers when they come out and the chain reaction that that sets up. Yeah, what a great place to start. So last night we saw some inflation data, last night my time, we saw some inflation data come out of the US hotter than expected, like you've mentioned there. Um, gold and particularly silver took quite a drop on the back of that news. Um, the DXY moved up substantially, so the US dollar is strengthening on that. Um, you know, people talking about, well, there's the interest rate cuts that everybody's been waiting for are delayed. So they're still coming, but they're delayed. Um, you know, Fed people are still saying that they're going to cut this year. Market's pricing in around a 1% cut down to the 4% level. Um, so that's something to be looking at there. But talking about the, the effect on the metals, I think it's quite um, poignant to think about the long-term implications of what's going on here. I mean, you know, if they're talking about interest rates being held higher for longer or anything like that, then you've also got to look at the debt that's maturing this year. So around $10 trillion of the US national debt is maturing in 2024. Um, so if they do keep rates at, you know, four, four and a half percent, then all of that debt rolls over at a much higher interest rate than what it was originally financed at. Um, so, you know, the markets, particularly the metals market, selling off on the back of, you know, higher for longer. We can understand that higher interest rates being a um, a headwind there for gold as it's uh, people think, oh, well, if I can get a higher interest rate on my savings, I'll keep it in the bank rather than buying gold. Um, but the long term picture is even uglier. The longer they hold rates high and the more debt that rolls over at said higher rates, it's just going to hurt them more and more on the interest repayments. So. You know, yes, inflation's higher. We see metals sell off, which from the initial standpoint, you think that doesn't make sense. Metals are supposed to be a hedge against inflation. Um, all of that's a US dollar move there. Um, and then, you know, you think about the bigger picture and you go, well, even if inflation's hotter and they hold rates, that's still not a bear case for gold here. So really interesting sell off there. Um, and something something to think about as well with with interest rate policy is interest rates have been high ish, <laughs> relatively speaking here, um, and the markets have continued to climb. Now you look at the bank for, uh, bank BFTP. Now that's ending, they say March or rumours that end in March, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why the markets have continued to climb higher in the face of these higher for longer interest rates and. You know the Fed talking, talking hawkish here. You know we we all know that they can't really play a Paul Volcker and raise him to fifteen percent again, um, but they are talking hawkish. Um, so it's it's very interesting. And then watching you know Jerome Powell flip flop on interest rates. 
I mean, well, sorry, before, before, before we continue it, there, let's dig into that a little bit more. Why with the bank term funding program, what's the mechanism that you think of that ending makes the markets keep climbing higher? So, well, I think ending the, the bank um, bank funding term program, I see that as a, a an end in additional liquidity added to the system. So I think of it as a as a program that's added liquidity, which has allowed the markets to climb. And therefore, when you withdraw the program, you're withdrawing liquidity, which could turn markets the other way, stock markets mm-hmm. in particular. Um, and, you know, given the nosebleed level valuations we're seeing at the moment, you know, there's, uh, I see the stock market is very prone to downside moves, not to say that they'll happen immediately, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a lot of room to the downside if they were to move down. Um so that's yeah my kind of thoughts with the BFTP is that they've it's held the markets up by providing liquidity um and you know if they do take it away in march like the rumors say then mm-hmm. i think that that could lead to some downside moves in the stock market gotcha and then just going back to your other point about let's say the comparison between the DXY and gold it could necessarily be that you know we're not actually seeing gold get sold off heavily mm. It could be just that kind of that comparison that the DXY has climbed so much, driving gold, you know, that couple, I don't even think it was 2% lower over the day, right? No, no, it was, it was less than two. Silver was more than two, but gold gold was less than two. And, you know, thinking about it as well, I mean, with rates at what, 4.5% and gold at, you know, just under 2,000 US dollars an ounce, I mean, a lot of gold bears out there have been saying that, you know, rates being as high as they are, you know, gold gold should be a lot lower. Um, and if you look at the the treasury bonds, the particularly the inflation, uh, the tips, the, the inflation protected treasury bonds, they've been really badly sold off. And they're, they're typically over the long term correlated to gold. So gold's held up a lot better than what you would compare it to, inflation-protected treasury bonds, um, and it surprised a lot of gold bears in that way as well. So, you know, us being gold bulls, we can sit here and say, you know, gold should be a lot higher for X, Y, and Z reason, and, you know, of course, I think we're absolutely right. Um, but the other way of looking at it is all these gold bears, in my mind, have been kind of proven wrong. Everyone calling for, you know, gold back to a 1000 US dollars an ounce or 1500 or anything like that, you know, quoting higher interest rates and, all of that, it, it hasn't eventuated for them either. We've just been trading sideways, which is, mm-hmm. you know, kind of bored the bulls and and bored the bears as well. So, yeah, it, it, it could be a lot worse, is I guess what I'm saying there with the gold price. It's holding mm-hmm. up quite nicely in the large scheme of things. And when you look at it in Aussie dollars, I mean, it looks a lot better. We're at over 3,000 Aussie dollars an ounce. Um, you know, it, it, it had a great year last year, went up 13.5% in Aussie dollars. Um, so you know, as a as a gold bug, you can't really be too upset with that, even in the face of higher interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you brought up a good point that this is just something that is, over the long run, something that is going to play out terribly. But when we have a move like this over the day, or let's say even this quarter, if we see gold stay below two thousand, in the grand scheme of things. That's going to look like an absolute blip on the, let's say, even the five-year chart. And I think that perspective is really valuable to make sure that we keep in mind. But where you were heading before that was 
what you think caused the flip-flop from Jay Powell in the middle of December, just before the new year there on his higher for longer path and that dovish speak that came out. Why do you think that he kind of changed his posture there? What a question. So I I remember back when he flipped back in December and, you know, I, I think all gold bugs have been saying that, you know, they can't raise interest rates forever, look at the debt, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like it was an unexpected move in of itself, but the timing to me was quite unexpected. I mean, I didn't expect him to pivot that quickly to say, you know, out of seemingly out of nowhere, hey, guys, you know, hi for longer, sorry, no more, we're going to cut rates, we're going to, you know, bring it all lower for you. And, of course, the market rallied, particularly the US stock market rallied really hard off that news. Um, and then, you know, now he's he's come out recently saying, sorry, guys, I was just joking. It's it's higher for longer again, and you know, of course, the markets, the stock market's still very elevated, um, but we're seeing you know gold start to sell off on on the idea of higher interest rates for longer. So it's what made him initially flip in December. Um, you know, we can all theorize. My theory is that he was watching the banking sector. I mean, we've seen New York Community Bank having issues there recently, and they're the ones that bought out Signature. So, you know, people are saying that the, the regional banking crisis is back. And in terms of my mind, what 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 made Jerome flip was that he could see that coming. You know, they've got much better data than I've got access to. Um, so my thinking is they saw it coming further down the pipeline than, than we could. I mean, we watch the news as it happens. They've got much better data than we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, you know, as you're explaining that to me, it occurs to me that obviously we're watching things happen in an election year. I think that this is going to be really telling for the Fed and especially for Jay Powell to really, in some ways, explain who he is and his path forward and to really determine how political the Fed is going to be led to be in this election. Yeah, it's 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 funny you say that. I mean, here in Australia, just drawing a parallel for a second, talking about the political the politicization of our central bank. I mean, really recently, last week or two, we've seen the state premier of Queensland, with you know Brisbane, Gold Coast, um, we've seen their state premier come out and start pressuring for lower interest rates, you know, for interest rate cuts from the RBA, from commercial banks. He's penned letters to commercial banks, you know, pleading with them to lower interest rates for his constituents. And you know, talking about the, the the independence of central banks and you know setting policy based on you know the right policy, not what you know not what people would like. I mean, I I see that as incredibly dangerous. You know, if if interest if interest rates are lowered in the face of inflation being way above the inflation target, you know, what does that tell the population? What does that tell investors? What does that tell the markets? And you know, when when you see politicians calling for this stuff, it it worries me, you know. It, it makes me think this guy's never read a book about hyperinflation before, which he probably hasn't. But again, it's worrying. Yeah, but I mean, something that we'll get to a little bit later on is really understanding those, you know, second and third order knock-on effects. These, you know, lowering interest rates, of course, incentive-based politics. Let's call it. Of course, you're going to think that that's the easiest, most 
expeditious solution to the problem right now. But again, if we step back and just look at it from a from the point of view of savers, who that ends up rewarding, you know, that's a it's a really unfortunate path to go down to in in some ways penalize people that are trying to be responsible with their money, right? Yep. A hundred percent. I I fully agree with that. You know, I think of it from a from a self interest perspective as well. You know, the, this politician in particular, the, the Premier of Queensland, I believe he's got four investment properties, um, real estate. Now in Australia, real estate's almost a religion. You know, we go crazy for real estate. We've had forty years of up. That's very very hard to argue with. Um, but you know, when 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 the Premier comes out and starts talking about how we need to lower interest rates, and he's sitting on four properties, you've got to really take that into consideration and say, yes, the incentives are skewed here towards lower interest rates. You know, if 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 most of the political class here in Australia are incentivized for lower rates, where do you think rates are going? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's one of the, the big picture things to consider there is, you know, in the very grand scheme of things, interest rate policy going forward over the next 10 years, yes, there's every reason for rates to go up. You know, inflation's higher, it's, it's going to be higher, um, in my mind at least, all of that. But on the flip side, the whole system is incentivized for lower rates. So incentives versus reality, I choose incentives, which means that hyperinflation in my mind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, another market I think that has been in a lot of ways used politically is the oil market, and especially with the draining of the SPR last year. So how do you mm-hmm. see that situation and let's say how it played out and what the results, the net results of that, you know, in some ways that political push to curb that portion of inflation, how that ended up working? Yeah, well, that's the oil market is fascinating to me. I mean, you know, gold bugs, we love to talk about market manipulation in the metals markets, which is absolutely true. You look at the paper-silver ratio at the moment, it's you know close to 400 to 1. It's, it's insane. But the oil market is also manipulated, and the oil market is the world's largest commodity market. So, you know, when you when you look at the oil market, the draining of the SPR, you know, the, the, the effect that had on price, bringing it down from 130 US dollars a barrel, you know, down to below 80 at the moment. Um, you know, I, I, I see a lot of the the moderation in inflation, at least in official inflation figures um, that we've seen over the last year or so, I, I attribute a lot of it to the to the lower oil price there. So, you know, market manipulation of the oil market has manipulated the entire economic picture. You know, talking about inflation is moderating, we stuck the soft landing, you know, it's all good guys, don't worry, we, you know, we it all worked. Yes, it inflation moderated because you dumped loads and loads and loads of oil on the market. So now that they're refilling the SPR again, and they've been refilling it at a much slower rate than they drained it so as to not add market pressure, um, but the oil price is on the way back up again. It seems to be supported at the 200-week moving average and seems to be, again, as I said, on the way up. So, you know, all of that all of that downwards pressure from the selling has now become upwards pressure from the buying. So I'm I'm very bullish oil. I think oil is going to have a great year, um, particularly given all the drama we're seeing in the Middle East. You know the Houthi rebels. You know Iran at the moment. 
Um, there's a lot going on there to talk about. So all of that is, of course, bullish for oil. Um, so, yeah, big picture, though, bringing it back to it, we've seen an, uh, a moderation in, in inflation due to or largely due to this dumping of the SPR, and I now see that reversing, which means that inflation should run hotter for that reason at least. Um, as well as the the reasons around shipping with the Middle East, you know the the um, redirecting ships from the Red Sea across Africa. That's a much longer route, much more expensive. That adds to the costs for consumers in the West. In the same way that when COVID kicked off and all the ports were shut, you know that that really added to our shipping costs there as well. So it's the same thing all over again for that reason as well. So all of these inflationary pressures which we've seen show up in the inflation data last night. You know, it's it, all of it leads to a, a bull case for precious metals, which are, again, hedges against inflation. Mm-hmm. So how do you see China, you know, reopening and the issues that they're having playing into that as well? From, you know, we're talking about these demand side factors. That's obviously a, a massive market that we have to take into consideration. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's one and a half billion people and it's the, it's the world's manufacturing hub. So, you know, with, with China at the moment, their, their share market's selling off quite sharply. Um, you know, they've banned short selling from their large financial institutions. You know, they're, they're printing massive amounts of money and stimulating the economy. They're lowering their reserve ratio requirements for banks. So they're, they're really pulling out all the stops to make sure that they make their landing as soft as possible there. Um, again, all of which is inflationary pressures for particularly for the, the metals market you know the, the Chinese love their gold right so you know if they print all this money and and hand it out willy-nilly then you know some of it's going to go into gold um and another beyond just China which is of course a, a massive driver for the for the market for oil you know they 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 love oil they they use a lot of oil and they don't really produce much um is India I also look at India going forward and I I you know, India is a huge country, over a billion people. Um, it's not very industrialised. It's very agricultural. There's lots of villages which don't have, you know, electricity or, you know, many cars or, you know, it, it's 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 got a long way to go in terms of industrialization, which I do see happening over the next 10 to 20 years. I think India will do really well. Um, but that will lead to a huge increase in the demand for oil from a big picture perspective there. So, you know, you've got you've got both the China stimulus and India's uh, industrialization being massive demand drivers for oil in general. So, you know, for for those reasons combined with the ones of what he mentioned, again, I'm, I'm quite bullish on oil, which that feeds in second and third order consequences that feeds into the commodity sector more broadly and precious metals more specifically. Mm-hmm. So then how about, you know, the supply side factors there, Sam? Like, are there many constraints you know just based on the war or is that the let's say the main constraint at this point before let's say i guess we can break that apart in two parts if you also think that we are facing a peak oil production situation as well yeah well from the supply side perspective i'd say that the 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 middle east is the largest thing to consider there but i mean even from a peak oil perspective, you know, people have been talking about the Permian Basin in the US. You know, the US at the moment is producing record amounts of oil, which is great. It's fantastic. 
Um, but there's lots of talk as to when that will peak. So, you know, fracking, obviously that really extended the US's oil production lifespan or, you know, really helped it hit those big numbers that it's doing now. Um, but eventually the Permian Basin will peak in terms of production. Um, there's all sorts of data as to when that'll occur. I don't have a view on the exact date or time that it will, um, but, you know, oil is a finite resource. We, we will eventually hit peak production um, and that may have already occurred. So, you know, that, that's that's another thing to consider from the supply perspective. And, you know, even if you go back to the the, the 2020 coronavirus panic, you know, back when the oil price went negative, lots of um, oil wells were capped. They were shut down. And, you know, that that means it's very, very, very hard or impossible to bring them back online again. So, you know, you've got you've got supply constraints. Um, we are at record production, but peak oil is coming in my mind. So again, you've got you've got that on the supply side to consider as well. So Sam, all of that considered, what ends up being your outlook on inflation? You know, going forward, obviously considering the cost of this raw cost input into the economy as a major you know, catalyst for inflation. Again, if we keep seeing oil price surging forward, does that mean inflation reflects that as well? Yeah, well, I, I think inflation will get a lot worse moving forward. You know, we've seen a, a moderation much like the mid-1970s where we saw inflation moderate, you know, the, the Fed prematurely um, thought it had won the fight against inflation. And then, of course, we saw the, the later half of the 1970s come through. Um, so I think we'll, we're seeing a, a similar thing today where inflation's moderating because they've dumped the SPR um, and then now they're refilling it. Inflation's on the way back up, as shown by the data last night. And I think that that's only going to get worse and worse and worse. You know, as as higher oil, oil prices have their second and third order consequences on the economy, you know, increased price of logistics, moving things around. Um, increased price of food because farmers use oil to produce their food. You know, everything requires oil. Anything that's got plastic in it, oil, mm -hmm. you know, it, it it's everything. So as the oil price climbs, the price of almost everything else will climb as well. Um, and that feeds on itself too. And, you know, something, something to consider there as well is that, you know, Western governments, at least, you know, here in Australia, they there's there's lots of talk of, of assisting with inflation, you know, having a cost of living crisis and you know people are saying that the government needs to help by printing money out of thin air and handing it out to the people that need it um, the, and again the inflation reduction act <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy isn't it when you when you think about it and you know those those sorts of policies are popular across the western world so all of those will be inflationary as well and those sorts of policies will become more and more popular as inflation gets worse so i see inflation feeding on itself um, and then you combine as well the consideration that inflation, in my mind, isn't just a um, isn't just a function of fundamentals. It's not just a function of currency creation and all that. It's also psychological. You know, I've talked about inflation expectations in the past and the importance of inflation expectations for the precious metals markets. You know, in, if you think that your dollar will be worth something tomorrow, you will not spend it today. If you think it will be worthless tomorrow, you're getting rid of it today. That's something that precious metal stackers can, you know, understand deeply. But when you can, when you, when you track that out to the general population, you know, a hyperinflation. If you look at the the Weimar hyperinflation in Germany, 
You know, they they started printing money in the First World War. You know, they they were seriously increasing their currency supply even before 1918, but it didn't really kick off until 1920, um, and that was because of the psychology of it. You know, the the fundamentals had been in place for years, but it's the psychology that changed. So that's that's again feeding into what I'm talking about here with inflation feeding on itself. It's not just the fundamentals which are absolutely there; it's the psychology of it. Mm-hmm. Sam, I want to go back to, you know, a thought that was occurring to me as we're, you know, talking about interest rates here and, you know, really central bank policy. Do you have a sense of, you know, if we end up getting all of the central banks acting in unison, let's say, or if basically the last central bank to start to loosen monetary policy ends up basically winning that fight just from a, you know, even a a capital attractiveness standpoint. Yeah, well, it's funny watching our Reserve Bank here in Australia, comparing that to the Federal Reserve. Um, You know, our, our Reserve Bank here has kept rates lower than the Federal Reserve has raised them. And that's led to a weakening in the Aussie dollar. Um, you know, if you if you take that out across the world, I mean, the, the best performing fiat currency over the last 50 to 100 years is the Swiss franc. You know, that's that's one of the only ones that's performed better than the US dollar, which is ironic considering how poor the US dollar's performed against gold. Um, but yeah, you look at countries like that, countries that are known for fiscal conservatism, or at least relatively speaking, then their currencies have done quite well. Um, I don't think that there's many countries around the world that are equipped to keep rates significantly higher than the Federal Reserve. I mean, you know, even Switzerland has had issues in its banking sector, Credit Suisse going down, um, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I I don't see any one country out there, you know, standing strong and, and being able to keep rates really, really high. I mean, people argue that here in Australia, we've got relatively low government debt to GDP ratios particularly compared to countries like Japan or the US. Um, so people are saying that, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're set to do a lot better. But I, I I had this discussion a little while ago with someone where, you know, if you look at Australia, we own 80 tonnes of gold, which sounds like a lot, but we've got 25 million people. So that only works out to be about three grams of gold per person. Now, the US is supposed to have over 4,000 tonnes of, of gold in the vaults. Um, and that works out to be a, a higher amount of gold per person. So, you know, yes, we've got less national debt to GDP than, than the US does, but we've also got a lot less gold per person than the US does. So there's all these considerations to be made. And that's one of the reasons that Swiss currency has done so well is because their gold holdings per person are very, very high. So, yeah, the, the big picture there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting equation to think about and to try to understand as well, you know, for example, with the U.S. not marking its gold holdings to market, right? They only hold it at, I believe it's something like $46 an ounce on their books right now. So those dynamics always, you know, you ha- you have to try and kind of see through the smokescreen or the, the gray <laughs> fog of economic manipulation to try to understand why they do things like that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And something something as well to consider about central banks and, you know, gold revaluations and all of that. I mean, you know, we, we saw that um, 
central bank in I think it was the Netherlands um, a year or so ago that came out and talked about you know if we were facing the the prospect of a of a a bank failure at the central bank level, we just revalue our gold. You know, that was that was a sneaky little comment that I think a lot of gold bugs picked up on there. Um, but, you know, even when you consider, that, you know, going back to the US for a second, 4,000 tonnes, I think people, more, not so in the gold space, but more broadly should really learn about central bank gold leasing. It was something that I was, I was briefly taught about at uni. It was one of the only things they taught me about gold at university. Um, and I, I think people are really under underestimating the importance of that you know if 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 here in australia our reserve bank publishes data on our central bank gold leasing that you know they've leased up to i believe almost 100% of our gold at certain points and you know if if 100% of your gold is on lease you know the physical bars aren't there you've leased them out you've got a paper contract that says you know we'll give them back and there is a revaluation event do you revalue it to the gold that you're supposed to have or do you revalue it to the gold that you do have? Mm-hmm. Again, something to consider. Yeah, because, I mean, if we look at the, let's say, the lead that the U.S. took when Russia went into Ukraine and they seized the assets of Russia that were in the U.S., you know, there are any number of justifications for let's say keeping other leased gold reserves right yep and you know counterparty risk we all think about it from a from an individual perspective of you know i've got money in the bank i have to trust them as a counterparty but from a sovereign nation perspective you know again i'll use australia as an example here i'm an australian our reserve bank holds 99.9 percent of our national gold at the bank of london or you know in london at the, at the bank of england so you look at that and you go, well, if there was this event where, you know, the the London Metals Exchange needs a bailout from the Bank of England, you know, if you think that the uh that the LME or isn't good for the for the paper contracts it has outstanding, which I don't think it is, then the question becomes in this scenario of it all the house of cards collapses. Whose gold is that really? Who does it go for? You know, what, what is it used for? And if the, the the Bank of England were to take it and use it to back, you know, all these paper contracts they've got outstanding, then Australia has no gold. We've got one or two ounces stored in Sydney for a country of 25 million people. You know, it's... And you know what the crazy part about that is that doesn't seem that far-fetched to imagine, right? If Australia has a problem and London has a problem, that means very likely there's more than just Australia and London that have problems, right? So mm-hmm. if there is, you know, this daisy chain of leasing or paper ownership of one asset that is at a reserve ratio of 10 to 1, let's say, that asset runs out real fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's... I look at it as well, and there's there's no wisdom in the central bank thinking around gold. I mean, I remember back at university when they taught me about central bank gold leasing, you know, they said, oh, we've got this great idea, you know, we run these big government deficits, you know, we've got all this gold sitting in the vaults doing nothing, you know, let's let's lease it out, get some income, you know, bring us closer to, to break even on on the budget. And, you know, I, I can understand all that. It's it's I wouldn't call it sound logic, but it is logic. 
Um, and, you know, there's a complete lack of, of wisdom, bigger picture thinking, et cetera, that goes along with that. And that's what really worries me is that nobody is, well, at least nobody within the system is, is really thinking about the things that we are. And, you know, there's, there's storm clouds on the horizon. So yeah, it, it, it makes you worried for the, for the future of your country. Well, at least at least you guys still have gold. Canada sold all of their gold, so we're in a much worse position from that respect. Yeah, I've I've got to say Canada's central bank seems maybe even more clueless than our central bank. Although you guys do have your, your beautiful gold windows for your central bank, you know, gold 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 in the windows. That's pretty cool. But yeah, you you, you did Australia we sold a lot of our gold back in the 90s, you know. The UK sold off loads of their gold back in the late 90s, early 2000s there, of course, close to the market bottom, as <laughs> government and central bankers can can only do is, yeah, sell market bottom. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's really worrying. You know, no one in the Reserve Bank of Canada seems to care that inflation is really high and other central banks around the world are stacking gold like crazy. You know, sometimes I wonder what the central bankers are thinking when they see that. Do they think, oh, no, we're above that, we're special, you know, we're – our economy could never fail. Our currency could never fail. You know, if so, that kind of um, hubris, hubris. <laughs> worrying. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, Sam, how does all of this, let's say, play into the market value that we're seeing in the U.S.? You know, the low interest rate environment to me that we've seen over the last forty years. As I was talking to. Dave Kranzler yesterday morning. This has just really driven everybody up and up and up the really the risk ladder to try and find some yield. So do you think that that ends up being, you know, this concentration that we've seen, it has just, again, just driven this momentum chasing behavior and everybody into this, this small concentration of stocks? Absolutely. You know, you look at the US stock market at the moment, most of the gains there are driven by the Magnificent Seven, you know, the Facebook, Google, Microsoft, et cetera. I mean, if you look at NVIDIA at the moment, that share price chart just looks insane, absolutely insane. So, you know, I, I look at it and I, and I think, yeah, there's massive concentration in names. You know, all of this capital is flying to you know, companies are doing buybacks, you know, huge corporate debt loads and, you know, share price keeps climbing higher in, in the face of that. And, you know, we're talk, we're looking at jobs numbers that are, that are getting weaker. Um, you know, there's, there's all this potential to the downside, but the market doesn't seem to be pricing any of it in, um, at least in the Magnificent Seven. But then you look at the small caps, and they they seem to be lagging the rest of the market. You know, it, it, it's not a it's not a fully fledged um, you know bull market in that only the magnificent the magnificent seven seem to be you know adding adding most of the gains here. So it's 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 a really weird stock market. Um, the the PE ratios are absolutely insane on some of these companies, particularly you know stocks like Nvidia. Um, and this is in the the face of layoffs. You know, we're we're seeing layoffs across the whole tech sector, while their stock prices are just going parabolic. And it it begs belief. You know, you look at it. I I never thought I'd see the stock market do this. You know, I I, I 
it just seems like value fundamentals don't even matter anymore. You know, it's just it's just follow the money. And I look at it and I think this this can't this can't end well. You know, when fundamentals no longer matter, you know, you're obviously in bubble territory. And you know, last night we saw this inflation data come in hot. We saw the U.S. stock market drop. I mean, you know, the 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 Nasdaq dropped almost two percent. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of room to the downside here. As I guess what I'm saying there. So what in turn do you end up watching? Let's say, you know, coming up for this year, the next couple of weeks. Are you concerned about the banking sector? You know, treasury auctions. What do you have your eye on? Yeah, so there's 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 a few things to be watching. So treasury auctions is one. Um, it's not the closest thing I'm watching, but I'm definitely watching it. There's been a lot of weakness in treasury auctions, and you know this year we've got, as I said, almost ten trillion dollars of debt maturing. Therefore, it needs to be rolled over, and those treasuries need to be sold to a willing and happy buyer. Um, that how that plays out will be very interesting. Whether the the free or the private market can buy up all that debt. Or whether the Federal Reserve's got to hop in, print some money, and buy some of that debt up as well. Um, you know, if if that latter scenario were to happen, again, incredibly inflationary there. Um, you know, monetizing the debt almost. So, yeah, there's 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 that to consider. Um, U.S. banks showing weakness. So, you know, we talked about uh, New York Community Bank. You know, people saying that the regional banking crisis is back on. I mean, at, at the end of the day, the the initial reason that Signature and Silicon Valley Bank went down. You know, uh, climbing interest rates. They've locked in all these assets at very low prices. Their liabilities are climbing as they've got to pay their depositors more and more. You know, all, all those problems they still exist. You know, the, the the U.S. banking system has still got rates much higher than they've been over the last five years. You know, there's still insane unrealized losses on these banks' balance sheets. You know, the the the, the BFTP the BFTP program is really just papered over the top of it. It's allowed them to continue functioning even in the face of their massive unrealized losses. So, you know, all the reasons that the, the original regional banking crisis happened are still there in the background. And, you know, talking about the, the BFTP program being withdrawn in potentially March, they're saying, well, if BFTP is the reason that the regional banking crisis went away, then the removal of BFTP could very well be the reason that the regional banking crisis comes back. So. Yeah, that's 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 a big worry, um, and particularly for the bullion space. You know, I, I remember when that sign, signature and Silicon Valley Bank stuff happened. There were lines around the block for the bullion dealers here in Melbourne. It was just insane. You know, when people start to worry about the safety of their funds in a bank account in a financial institution, you know, that's that that is incredibly dangerous for banks, and you know. It's it's a very worrying time for banks. I, I wouldn't want to be a banker right now. You know, that's actually something I wanted to get your take on. Since you guys have been operating Adams Bullion, have you seen any trends, whether that is, you know, large buying or even selling for that matter, you know, selling by consumers trying to get some money out of their precious funds? Yeah, so broadly speaking, I mean, in, in in the precious metals markets or on the bullion industry, so January is generally a quite quite a slow month. There's 
a lot of financial hangovers from Christmas. You know, people are generally low on fiat. There's a bit of selling as people need to fund their holidays and all their purchases, et cetera. Um, so there's been a little bit of selling over the last month, but there's also been a lot of buying, um, a lot of first-time buyers coming in, a lot of people that are, you know, again, looking at inflation, looking at interest rates, they're going, well, if they take interest rates lower with inflation high, what does that mean? So, you know, there, there is a lot of buying, particularly, you know, November and December were very big months. November was a huge month for us. Um, so, you know, there, there is a lot of interest in the space, particularly for newcomers. Um, and, you know, even even existing investors, you know, the price charts over the last couple of years, you know, silver's just moved sideways. Um, gold and Aussie dollars has moved up, which is great, but gold and US has moved sideways as well. So, you know, existing stackers, they've, they've built their positions, you know, maybe they're, they're adding to them slowly, slowly over time. But no, we, we, we've seen a lot of, of interest from new buyers coming in, which is, is good to see. You know, it's good to see that people are waking up to the risks that we all face um, and are doing something to prepare themselves for it. So, yeah. And another trend I've been seeing is people are mostly interested in silver. I mean, you know, with the with the gold to silver ratio at where it is at the moment, you know, reached 90 to 1 the other day, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense for people to be piling into silver more so than gold. I mean, there's still a lot of interest in gold, don't get me wrong, um, but even just the other day, I had a client come in and, you know, she originally bought gold and silver with me, you know, 70, 30, 70% silver, 30% gold. And then she bought her gold in recently and she goes, you know, I, I want to swap this over for silver. I think, you know, silver is going to do a lot better. So, yeah, we've seen a trend towards silver um, and lots of new buyers, which is, again, very promising. And how about on your sourcing side? Like, you know, have you seen a variation in premiums that you guys are having to to pay on the wholesale side? Uh not necessarily too much variation in premiums. Um, I would say that availability has been uh, spotty. So, you know, we've had to wait up to three weeks for silver kilo bars. Um, you know, at the moment, it's about a week or two wait from our suppliers there, but that those wait times have blown out, particularly in the November, December time. It was, you know, <laughs> the, the, the industry was very busy. Um, but no, from a, from a premiums perspective, it, it's it's been pretty stable. Um, so yeah, more more so availability. Yeah, excellent. Well, that's great, Sam. I I think that's a, a good place to kind of wrap up today's conversation. Unless you have anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with for today. No, no, that's that's all for me. But um, yeah, great chat with you as always, Tom. And looking forward to speaking with you again in the future. Absolutely. And of course, for anybody that wants to know more about Sam or their business all available at adamsbullion.com and on Twitter as well, at adamsbullion. Sam, thanks so much for your time. Uh, pleasure, Tom, and thanks for having me. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.